Welcome to the Trailbreaker Podcast. I'm Aaron Feinberg. In this podcast, I explore what it takes to be a trailbreaker through intimate conversations with people carving new paths across the landscapes of business, art, and sport. We dig in on how to excel across seemingly disparate endeavors. What drives people who manage to succeed multidimensionally? Is it how they think? Is it meticulous planning and follow through? Or is it some measure of delusional optimism? My guest today is Stephanie Thomas, Executive Director of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation, an organization she's been a part of for the past 15 years. Her favorite parts of the job are supporting her search and rescue volunteers, brainstorming what's next, and working with community partners. When not on search and rescue duty, Steph's exploring the mountains by foot, wheel, or paddle with her three kiddos, partner Clay, and their silly dog, Hank. We talked about the community prevention and education programs they run to keep locals and visitors out of trouble or to help them respond more effectively when trouble finds them. The Care for the Caregiver mental health programs they've created for their search and rescue volunteers and her family's upcoming four-month adventure to Central America, South America, and Europe. Steph, good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here. So like some of my other guests, I have known you for over 20 years, and it is so great to see some of the work that you continue to be up to in serving the greater Jackson Hole communities. So for anyone who doesn't know you and what you're up to, give us the, the short spiel on what Steph Thomas does when she's not talking to me. <laughs> uh, well, that's kind of a broad question, but um, most of my time these days are filled with, uh, on one side, my family. I've got three little kids and a spouse plus a goofy dog, um, and we're always adventuring in the mountains um, as well as spending some time in Jackson Hole doing what we love. But on the other side of things, I run the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation and also have been a volunteer on that team for the last 15 uh, of the 19 years I've been in this valley. So um, that takes up quite a bit of time and uh, it's it's pretty all-encompassing when I'm not with my crew at home. And so your role there is executive director, is that right? Yep. I'm the executive director of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation, which is the nonprofit that supports the volunteers who do the actual search and rescue missions. Got it. So you guys kind of have an interesting, an interesting structure, right? Where there's, there's kind of three entities that are all working together to, to do the rescues in town. So give us a sense of, of what those three entities are and then how does it kind of seamlessly uh, unravel or unfold to, to be supportive to the town? Yeah, there's a, there's a long history of search and rescue in this valley way before when the actual team was formed in 1993. Um, but the sheriff's office has uh, kind of the direction from the state that they are, the sheriff's office is in charge of search and rescue. And the way they accomplish that is by recruiting volunteers who uh, are under the sheriff's purview to respond and uh, do the search and rescue missions in and around Teton County. And so for a long number of years. That's kind of how it happened. Um, volunteers would get a page, they'd show up, they'd kind of go about their day. Um, and then about 12 years ago, um, we saw a need for some more funding and some form 
some more equipment. And so I kind of jumped in and, um, helped the team raise some cash to build a building our first ever. And then from there kind of created a foundation that went on to support the volunteers financially, as well as through some community education and advocacy work in order to really have a holistic set of expectations, um, for the community and for our volunteers. And so now what happens is, um, call comes in 911 call comes in and there's an emergency in the backcountry that goes through the sheriff's office and then is directed towards the volunteers and they respond. Um, they do work under the sheriff's office in order to do that. Um, but we, as the foundation kind of make sure that that help happens as effectively, uh, and as efficiently as possible by providing funding for training, for equipment, uh, just taking care of people. I mean, like I said, these are all our volunteers, so they're leaving the workforce and kind of getting out there. Um, so yeah, we do kind of that beside the behind the scenes support work and, um, really trying to make sure that that message gets out to the community, that the volunteers are there, they're doing their job and, um, they're well supported. And, and it's, pretty wide range of rescues that you guys are up to given where Jackson is located in the world. So just some sense of the kind of stuff that might happen seasonally, whether it's the winter, uh, in, uh, in the backcountry or whether it's summertime rescues with either locals or, or folks visiting. So what kind of stuff do the volunteers get dispatched to do? Yeah. Our team, uh, is, is unique in that way. There's a decent amount of teams that really have focused areas. Uh, our team responds to all rescues and everyone on the team is trained to respond to all rescues. Um, it comes to a surprise to some people that 60% of our rescues happen this summer, 40% happening in the winter. Um, so the summer rescues are really things on the swift water, um, areas of the snake do a lot of hikers, um, horseback riding, ATV accidents, um, trying to think of some other stuff that goes on and then big searches looking for people who went missing, um, kind of thought they were going to do an, one adventure and turned out to do a different one. Uh, winners really backcountry skiing, snowmobiling, snowboarding. Uh, we help with all of the activity outside of the gates of Jackson hole mountain resort. That's about a third of the rescues in the winter, um, come directly from people accessing the backcountry through the gates. And then we've had rising numbers of snowmobile accidents up in the Togedy area. So lots of people coming from out of the state to um, recreate up there and um, occasionally need some help. And given the range of the things that the volunteers have to both be skilled in and then also be exposed to, when you talk about the equipment that they need just to be able to do their job safely, what goes you know into the sort of the daily uh rescue operation in terms of gear that that's required. Yeah, it totally is a huge range depending on, you know, the season and what the kind of rescue is at hand. So our building, our whole first floor of our building is really just a gear garage. So it's just rows and rows of, of trucks and toboggans and snowmobiles and sleds and medical gear and, uh, you know, titanium litters, kind of everything that you can think of to move or or carry people, um, in order to get them to an ambulance or a helicopter or wherever we're kind of trying to get them to. Um, so we're always thinking about kind of what's next or better ways, more efficient ways to do things. Our medical director is really amazing at like trying to find the most perfect backpack to carry, you know, oxygen and AED and a splint. So, um, he's always on the lookout for things like that as, as well as the rest of the volunteers. There's definitely a lot of gear junkies out there trying to figure this all out. 
Um, but there's no real typical rescue. Um, that's why we have this cache of equipment for people to come and kind of pick and choose what we need for each, for each rescue and each mission. And I also know, you know, in addition to the actual rescues and, and, you know, getting people ideally home safely, there's a good amount of work you guys do in terms of prevention and education for the community. Give me a sense of what you're doing now and historically maybe what you've done for programs that have sort of helped people to, to get a little clear on what they can do so they don't put themselves in these positions. Yeah, absolutely. It's just been a real mission of our volunteers for a long time to kind of educate the community. So back even before we had our foundation, people were showing up at, you know, snowmobile nights at the Elks Lodge, or they would be going into classrooms and talking with kids. The foundation really just formalized what people had been doing previously and kind of created a program out of it. So um, about six years ago, maybe it's seven now, we started the Backcountry Zero project, which was basically to reduce fatalities and injuries in the backcountry. And we kind of set out on this mission um, based on kind of the Vision Zero project in Sweden, which had the idea of reducing fatalities um, in car accidents. So we kind of took that model and kind of tweaked it a bit so that it could be more localized and kind of smaller version for Jackson Hole um, and really looked at partnerships. We looked at infrastructure, looked at education, um, signage, messaging, all the things that we could do to kind of put it out there in the universe that, um, you know, not only do search and rescue volunteers want you to come home uh, after, you know, a mission, they, they want you to be prepared to stay out if you need to, or to help somebody else. And so we've accomplished that through classes messaging. We have our own podcast, um, the fine line. Um, you know, we work with a lot of different partnership groups to make sure things like, um, beacon check stations are up at the pass or, um, AEDs are down on the river, um, free PFDs for people who don't have them. Those sorts of programs are really the mainstay of backcountry zero and what we're kind of trying to get at, which is working as a community to prevent some of these accidents that could be preventable. And I, I don't know if it came through you guys, but I just have seen over the last few years on social media coming out of Jackson, you know, a lot of encouraging of folks who have been a part of these issues, either as folks who needed to get rescued or unfortunately with somebody who, who needed to be, or, or maybe passed away or on the rescuer side around really speaking candidly about what happened, um, what they would have done differently, what you know, what they tried, et cetera, and just kind of creating a dialogue that can push everybody forward in kind of reduce the shame and the blame, and the guilt while, you know, kind of helping everybody to sort of, to sort of up their game. Um, that was something you guys were a part of, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The shaming culture around backcountry accidents is like widely known. And it's something that I think a lot of people aren't really proud of in our community. And so we've done things like create the fine line podcast, which really goes into rescue stories. And so it not only connects rescuers with the rescuees, it allows people to talk about their stories, maybe things they would have done differently and kind of talk to the people who are involved in making sure that rescue happened, which has been a really great piece, um, for our organization. Uh, we've also done things like create our Wyoming snow and avalanche workshop, which happens every October. Uh, it brings in speakers from all over the United States, actually all over the world, uh, to talk about kind of risk and consequence in, in snow science, um, bringing those, all those things together, um, for a couple of days of, of really great education, um, around the kind of snow culture, um, but also preloading 
information so that you can kind of have that right mindset before kind of going into the backcountry for the winter. So that's a com- conversation we always have. We, uh, really feel for the people in accidents, you know, nobody's a volunteer, um, out of anything, but wanting to help somebody out and, uh, rooting for the underdog is definitely something that sticks with people. So, you know, we want people to get out there. We want them to have adventures and it's awesome when they can kind of learn from their mistakes, teach others, mentor, um, mentor people as they move forward. And, and on that sort of mentoring concept, you know, I'm going to toot your horn. Cause you know, maybe you won't, uh, <laughs> cause you're, you are a humble leader, but you know, I feel like the work that you guys are doing in Teton County is, is pretty special. And, and it also feels like, you know, other groups in, in the United States, as well as in Europe have kind of been talking to you or checking out what you've been up to and, and sort of curious about what you guys are doing. That is a little different than maybe the norm. So, so w- what do people want to inquire about when they, when they're ringing your bell? Well, thanks, Aaron. That's really nice of you to say. Um, I think people are just interested in different models. I mean, search and rescue is not a new concept anywhere in the world. So, um, you know, in Europe, it's all professionalized. So everyone's paid, they're a paid professional. Um, and they, they do a lot of it, but it doesn't, that doesn't work in the United States In the United States we're a volunteer culture in Canada, it's kind of a mix. So people are just really interested in the different models. Um, there's, I don't know of any other specific foundation. Um, I know most, uh, search and rescue teams have a nonprofit that helps raise money, but they don't have a staff like we do to help really move some of these bigger projects along. And so a lot of people want to call and figure out, you know, how did you do the paperwork to become a foundation? What does your staffing look like? How do you pay for it? You know, what is your messaging? Can we use your messaging? You know, we've shared our messaging with a number of teams who then kind of use it in their own communities. Um, I spent a decent amount of time talking to other ski resorts about implementing surveys, gate surveys, people who are going out of bounds. Cause we run, I think the largest gate survey program in the, in the world at the moment, which is, um, pretty awesome to just talk to people who are leaving the gates about what kind of equipment they have, the education they have, where they're going, that sort of thing. So, uh, we love talking to people. We love getting the word out about what we're doing. Um, we're always trying to push the envelope a little bit without, you know, going too far. Um, but it's been really nice to partner on some of these more unique programs. You know, the loner PFD program that started a few years ago was a great opportunity. You know, who knew that if we put a hundred PFDs in the river, that somebody would actually put them on and then return them. And that's kind of the case, which is great. Um, you know, these AED stations that we have along the river and now in some of our bigger organizations and nonprofits in town, it's another great program of just kind of getting that message out there about kind of prevention and safety. Very cool. And, and I know that, you know, you work with some fantastic people, some of which have had the pleasure of getting to meet and, you know, they're powerhouses in the medical world They're powerhouses in the, in the community safety and policing space. They're, you know, uh, experts in, in the nonprofit workings and, you know, you guys have gotten to this point as a team, right? You've, you've kind of been pushing that envelope in, in, in a lot of ways over the last few years. And anytime you have a multi-headed organization like you do, there's, there's friction, there's, there's differing priorities, there's, you know, and you have strong personalities that, that really resonate with some of those priorities. As a person pushing for, for collaboration and change with all those three groups, give me a sense of what, how you've really gotten everybody. And I know it was not all been you, right. But you've had a big 
big role in it. What have you done to sort of get this organization to the state it's in? Uh, that's a great question, Aaron. It's definitely a, a partnership and an ebb and flow. Um, you know, especially in our situation, you know, we're really working with a private public partnership. And so there's just certain things that government isn't able to do or can't do, or don't have the flexibility to do that nonprofits do. And so there's always going to be a little bit of a push and pull of like, yeah, maybe we can accomplish that, but is that doable within the kind of public sphere right now? And so sometimes we have to be patient and wait. Um, I do a lot of listening, uh, talking less, listening more. Um, I'm super positive. Uh, it's definitely one of the things, um, you know, we focus a lot on mental health with our volunteers and what we use this phrase trending green. So I try to trend green in terms of where I'm looking, not, you know, what has happened in the past. And I think just building kind of the team around you that, you know, wants to see kind of, you know, what's best for the community, what's best for our team. And then what's, what's the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, I got to ask myself, like, is this the right thing to do right now? Like, do, you know, is this going to make our world a better place, our community, a better place, our team, whatever it is. And then, um, kind of working through the steps to, to make sure that we've got, you know, buy-in from people. And then kind of, like I said, pushing the boundaries where it makes sense to, um, if it's the right thing to do. If you're comfortable, can you give an example of, of some initiative or some idea you had that you felt like you were pushing hard to get forth and get sort of buy-in on? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things, like I said, the private partner piece of it can get a little tricky, but a couple of years ago, we started this, um, kind of mental health program, uh, within our first responder community. And at the beginning of it, we kind of said like, oh, well, we'll do this peer support thing. And it didn't have a lot of traction Like people were into it, but there wasn't much funding behind it. There wasn't a lot of movement. And basically I'd asked like, Hey, what if the foundation took this over and really just kind of administrated it, implemented some training and kind of pushed it. And so we did that about six months into the program. And then it's kind of been steamrolling since then. I mean, we serve um, more first responders with uh, direct therapist visits um, than anyone else I know. We do have this very robust peer support team that really works on um, keeping each other healthy and in a positive space. Um, but it's also something that, you know, the government really hasn't been part of in the past. And so it was like a real big push to get, you know, the fire department and the sheriff's department to buy in with funding. And the sheriff was kind of the first guy to do it. He, you know, he put down the money and was like, okay, I'm in. And so from there, it just kind of snowballed into, yeah, this is really important. We do need to provide direct services. We do need to help those who are helping others. Um, and I kind of, you know, push a little bit on that to make sure that we have all the resources and training that we need so that this program can continue to be as robust as it needs to be to support, um, all of our first responders in the Valley. And so, yeah, it's a little bit, you know, it's not directly supporting search and rescue. It does search and rescue is one of the agencies. Um, but it's the right thing to do to support all first responders in this Valley. Cause it's going to make us a more cohesive team all together. You know, when we go on big searches, it's the national park, it's us, it's police department, it's the sheriff's department, it's dispatch, everybody's working together. And so we all want to be in a good space to be able to do that. So important. I mean, those programs to provide care for the caregiver, you know, and especially for, for folks who are, you know, in it for the support of the community and, and to d put themselves in harm's way to help somebody get out of harm's way, you know, and it's, um, you know, 
there's the, the grit and the ruggedness and the, and the super high performers and the super skilled across all these different parts of, of a rescue operation. And it's not always something that we make time for, uh, that we, you know, think we need necessarily. So I think the fact that you guys are offering it, you know, in such a robust way is fantastic. What's the response been like from the, from the participants? Oh, it's been fantastic. I mean, the first like six to eight months, it was pretty much a slow roll. And then as soon as it kind of hit people like, oh, this is, this is something I should do. It's, it's moving and rolling. We went from two therapists to four therapists that we, you know, have available for people. Um, we do a bunch of peer support. So just, you know, calling people up, checking in with people. Um, we provide things like different wellness incentives for people to, you know, get a massage or get some acupuncture or whatever they need to like keep themselves healthy and moving forward. So, uh, it's definitely caught on and it's something that, um, we're, we're proud of to be part of as well as kind of like want the community as a whole to see like, Hey, we're, we're working on this for first responders. Like let's keep, let's keep this rolling. Got it. So if I understood there's, there's some, is there some aspect of it that's, that's preventative in terms of like massage, acupuncture, et cetera. And then is there more like, like triage focus just post, uh, you know, rescue operation to sort of help folks manage the, the reactivity or the trauma that they just experienced? Yeah, absolutely. And then everything in between. So yeah, lots of prevention, uh, peer support to kind of, you know, keep people together. And I think in the military, they call them battle buddies. So just people that you're checking in on and making sure we're all kind of moving in the right direction. And then uh, a really robust system uh, for post-event remediation, I guess, or post-event trauma um, to really get services in place if we need them and and kind of keep people um, so that they can get back to work as quickly as possible. Awesome. And um, in terms of the focus of the program moving forward, is it going to kind of stay as it is or is it you have plans to expand that too? Well, we continue to expand it just based on the need. And so, um, you know, we've been raising funds to help families of first responders, which I think is a huge deal. Um, I mean, a lot of times, like, you know, the heroes go out to do their thing, but their spouse is at home with the kids or making dinner or walking the dog. And so um, we've really expanded our services there and, and provided some training for the kind of spouses and families of first responders. Um, and then we're using kind of our model in the Jackson Hole community to look at mental health as at a whole community and what it looks like to potentially offer things like wellness visits with therapists or peer groups or other supportive ways that employers can, you know, keep people in their restaurants happy. So um, we're kind of using it right now um, as we're piloting into like what the community is going to do um, kind of in this next phase of mental health. So good. And so kind of pulling it back to your family. Uh, obviously you have a, uh, a spouse and three kids. Um, and maybe clay has gone through the training because I'm sure he, uh, he, uh, he watches you head out the door on a daily basis to some of these things. Um, but it is a mom of three kids and a, and a, and a wife, uh, and a, and a dog mom, um, in terms of, you know, the way that you structure, organize your time, you know, you've got three kids in school, um, you've got home responsibilities, but these, the work that you do is it can, you know, you can get a ring up in the middle of the night. You can, you know, at the drop of a hat, you're, you know, you're stuck with a rescue. You're not coming home. How do you manage it all? I manage, I mean, there's no, there's no magic to this, to this system here. Like some days are better than others. Uh, I've got this 
amazing family and amazing community. Um, it's not just my family. It's my, it's the whole community, you know, it's my neighbors and friends and, um, you know, I work really hard at saying no when it's appropriate and saying yes, when I have to, um, and I want to, um, but there's certain situations, you know, we had a big search this last weekend and I was heading to Pinedale to watch my oldest race mountain bikes. You know, I got a call like, Hey, can you come in? And I was like, no, like, we're going to have to talk to somebody else. And that works sometimes, um, because we have a big bench. We have a lot of people on the team. Like I said, I'm not only the foundation executive director, I am a team member. And so when I got that call on Friday, it was, Hey, we need your resources as a team member, but we've got a big bench, lots of people with skills. And so I was able to go to Pinedale, watch my son race. The next day I was driving back up through search, big searches going on. We get another call out. And so I'm like, okay, sorry, we got to We got to change plans here for a second. And so Ellery, my oldest, you know, just basically came with me. He came to the rescue cache. We collected all the gear. We got a couple people. We went out to, uh, you know, the past to do a rescue and he kind of helped me with my radio. He kind of, you know, talked to my <coughs> husband to let him know that we were going to be late, uh, to our next adventure. And, you know, we were about 90 minutes off schedule, but he got to be part of this kind of rescue scene and see what it's about. And then we were able to help somebody out on a bad day and then get moving. So it's ebbs and flows. It's, um, saying no, when I need to, you know, I got a call last night. My husband was at soccer with my daughter and one sleeping and one on the couch. And luckily my 11 year old is a fantastic babysitter. So I was like, Hey man, I'm going to walk out the door in about five minutes if this person isn't found. And he was like, all right, see you later. So yeah, that's just how it works in our family. And, um, people are good at being flexible and moving where they need to. And they also know that when I need to prioritize them, I do it. That's awesome. And you know, you build a, you build a solid bench at work. You got a solid bench at home, uh, and, uh, adaptable, flexible, and powerful. It's pretty, pretty awesome crew to be running with. Yeah. It's definitely the people around you is, uh, that makes it tick. I couldn't, the other thing I have to leave a lot is my work, my foundation work to go do rescue. And so my staff at the office is just unbelievable in terms of like, how quickly they maneuver and change and provide things that, you know, weren't on their plate that day. So working for our organization, isn't just about coming in and sitting at your desk at a moment's notice, you know, rescue might happen and you've got to like help pull out trucks or, you know, get lunch for 25 people, um, which, you know, isn't somebody's normal day, but that's just what happens around our place. Yeah. I'd imagine that you've got to, you've got to select for people who, who've got that ability to, to pivot on a dime and whether they have a whole bunch of existing skills already, or they're up for learning a bunch of new things. I would imagine, you know, you've got to have people like that surrounding you. Yeah, absolutely. So keeping it on the family side of things for, um, for a minute, you know, you had shared with me offline, you've got a pretty fun adventure happening this spring. Um, what are your plans for that awesome family of yours for those months that you told me about? Yeah. I mean, after it'll be 12 years in June that I'll be working at the foundation. Um, you know, I've been talking about with my staff and my team, you know, is it time for me to leave? Is it time for me to kind of move on from this job, um, in terms of, you know, have I reached its capacity? I mean, I'm, I'm super happy with my job. I love what I do. I feel like I provide great service, but after 12 years somewhere, like is it time? And so after a lot of conversations, um, we kind of came to the idea that maybe the time was for me to take a break. So I'm taking a sabbatical this spring with the hopes of coming back to work. 
um, and being refreshed and ready to go again. Also gives my staff an opportunity to kind of step up, kind of see where they can um, fill in some gaps. Although I don't think there are many, I think they can handle it all without me. Uh, and so the family and I are taking off um, for four months, starting in March, and we're heading south. Um, our hope, I mean, this is all kind of with the state of the world right now, but um, we're hoping to spend about six weeks in Central America, six weeks in South America, and finish up uh, the kind of trip in Europe. Um, our kids are enrolled in a dual language school, so they spend half their day in Spanish and half their day in English. And so really immersing them in Spanish culture has been a high priority of my husband's and mine. And there's no perfect timing. You know, originally we wanted to take a whole year, you know, we wanted to quit jobs and go, but with the world, the way it is, um, we're doing what we can so that we can still live these experiences that we want to do, but know that it's important for us to, you know, keep some income in and keep our housing where it is, um, and all of that. So yeah, we're really psyched. Nothing's super planned out at the moment, except for we're looking for good waves to, jump on at least for this first six weeks and then take it from there. So cool. How do the kids feel about it? They're really excited. I, uh, you know, my four and five-year-old four and six-year-old, uh, sorry, I forget their ages sometimes, uh, are a little bit, you know, like, Oh, great. Like they don't really know what's going on. A lot of people are surprised. My 11 year old, almost 12 year old is as excited as he is, you know, I'm taking him away from his friends and his sports and all that. But, um, He's just an adventure at heart. He just loves getting out there and adventuring. So he's pretty psyched to kind of explore the world and see what's out there. Um, and we, we travel quite a bit or we did pre pandemic. So, um, it's been kind of a, people have been itching to get out. We talk a lot about the, the adventures we want to go on and, and where we want to go. So if nothing else, we'll, we'll get somewhere and we'll adventure doing something. We're just not totally sure what that is yet. So great. And, um, you know, I know that it's not even close to planned out, but are you thinking, you know, when you say, when you go to Central America, you'll pick a, a zone and just sort of travel out from there from those six weeks, or are you going to kind of be nomads and really Bob and we for, for however long you're in, you say Central America or South America? Yeah. My partner Clay has to work while we're gone, has to, gets to, I should say he gets to work while we're gone. And so, uh, internet is, is important. So our kind of plan is to have home bases for a couple of weeks at a time and then really travel out from there. We might do a little bit more excursion centric travel in South America, where maybe he'll take a couple week vacation, um, from work and really concentrate our time kind of doing a driving trip or something in Argentina. Um, but our hope is for him to be able to work pretty seamlessly from the places we are at. Um, while I really focus on, you know, finishing up schooling with the kids and immersing in some Spanish language and culture and, and really getting outside. And you're going to try to get barreled, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> it's time, Steph. It's time. You've earned okay. it. Right. 12, yeah. 12 years at the foundation and you're ready for your first warm water barrel. Yeah, I might be. <laughs> did the, did the kiddos surf yet? Uh, my oldest has taken a few lessons is pretty into it. The little ones, um, I've put out some inquiries to get them some lessons while we're out there. So, um, yeah, they'll be, they're all good swimmers, which is great. It's kind of the first step. Um, and now we'll get them out into the water. Perfect. Well, look, Steph, all the best in, uh, getting through this upcoming winter and for sure on that fantastic trip you've got, uh, in the makings. And I want to thank you for your time today on the show. And, uh, if folks want to connect with you a little bit more on some of the work you're doing at the foundation, how do they find you? 
Yeah. Super easy to find us on our website, uh, t10countysar.org. Um, otherwise Stephanie at t10countysar.org is my email address. Aaron probably has all that info. Um, but yeah, really easy to see what we're up to see our events, sign up for all of our online offerings and, uh, get to know our team a little bit more. Fantastic. Well, have a good rest of your day and thanks again for your time. Thanks Aaron. Bye. The Trailbreaker Podcast is created by Aaron Feinberg with production support provided by Michael Morey. More interviews and videos can be found at aaronfeinberg.com.